Throughout history, countless resources have been spent, wars waged, and lives sacrificed in the pursuit of freedom. Freedom is highly prized. The Book of Galatians is a letter written about how all of us can experience real, true, lasting freedom. Not just freedom from the things that hold us back, but freedom for the things that enable us to thrive. This freedom is only found in one place, the person of Jesus. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Uh, yeah, it's my birthday, and uh, I have now um, sadly had to have to say goodbye to my 20s, and uh, uh, I enjoyed my birthday very much. I actually, there's a serious point to this. I find celebrating my birthday very difficult. I feel like it is, birthdays are sort of the preserve of eight-year-olds, and after you're eight, you probably need to just grow up a bit. However, however, I have learned that that's not a particularly healthy experience. Uh, and what I realize is I find it difficult to just enjoy and be pampered and looked after. Birthdays are random things. You're one day you're that age, and then the next day you're this age. And it seems, though, that people want to be nice to you. And Hannah, my wife, wanted to be nice to me. And I realized I find it quite difficult. And she really treated me. Thank you very much. Uh, massage I had at Spa, at Raven Spa, which was very good. Uh, birthday cake, chocolate and walnut, my favorite. Champagne, my favorite. And then out to dinner, my favorite. It was great. And the reason I say all of that is because some of us find it difficult to receive gifts and to receive things, to just be able to um, uh, be at peace, being cared for and looked after. And today's talk really is about that. It's about um, receiving free, free stuff. Some people are brilliant at it. Others find it a little bit offensive. If you are in the offensive category, even a little bit, if you find it difficult to just receive good things, this talk is for you and for me. So we are starting a series on the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, and um, before we get into this series, I want to do a little bit of uh, important background for it. The main issue that Paul is confronting here in Galatia is that a group of Christians have influenced these churches in Galatia away from the gospel of Jesus. Specifically, these people are insisting that to be a true follower of Jesus, you, uh, yes, need to receive Jesus' grace, yes, you need to receive the giving of the Spirit and live by the Spirit, but also, on top of that, you need to keep the Jewish law. This is the problem. And these influences are commonly known as Judaizers. They are so-called because they are Judaizing these new Christians away from just the truth of the gospel. And so we can properly understand the context. I want to do a little bit, this isn't going to last long, but a little bit of sort of historical background to briefly consider, to start with, um, what Judaism was from which Christianity emerged. It is very important to understand that Judaism is not a religion of works. Unfortunately, um, some Christians have been brought up with that idea uh, that Jewish people needed to fulfill the law in order to be God's people. And a failure to, of keeping the law meant they lost their status as God's people. Now, this is just not a correct depiction of Judaism. So I'm sorry if you've been brought up with that. You can just park that and leave that behind. 
Rather, Judaism is a religion of faith. God chose a people, Abraham and his descendants for himself. And in this choosing, in this gracious act of God, and only in it, God's people became God's people. It was entirely God's work, not theirs. And therefore it was received by faith. The law is given, therefore not as a means of making God's people his, but rather to mark them out as already his. It was a badge of honor. Abraham's descendants were God's people, and because they were God's people, they therefore kept the law. It's what told them, and importantly, the whole rest of the world, who they were. The law was the depiction that they were God's chosen people. Now, of course, throughout history, God's chosen people broke the law. They sinned. But this did not stop them ever being his people. When they sacrificed, sorry, when they sinned, they were given a way back and they sacrificed for their sins to be made right with God again. But all this while remaining 100% fully his. But what happens in Jesus is this. Jesus brings an end to the era of God's chosen people being restricted to national Israel. In Jesus, God chooses the whole world. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, who chooses to respond to Jesus' free gift of gracious inclusion into God's people is now called righteous. This is the wonder, the extraordinary thing of what God has done. So, the era of the Jewish law has therefore ended. It is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the only one righteous. He's the only one who fully lives the perfect life. And so the law no longer serves a purpose. And therefore, God's people are no longer marked by the law. They are instead marked by two very simple things. The grace of Jesus and the life of the Spirit. The grace of Jesus, the life of the Spirit. That is what it is to be a person of God now. And so, for Paul, these Judaizers, and their insistence on adding adherence to the law on top of Jesus and the Spirit is a massive problem. Not because he doesn't see the law as something that was inherently good, but because he knows that the era of God's law has now ended. So two very dangerous things happen, and this is his fear. Firstly, adding the law robs the completeness of Jesus' saving grace. And therefore, we dilute his unmerited favor with legalistic attempts to earn his favor. And secondly, it steals from the life of the Spirit. We swap opening ourselves to the Spirit of God to change us and renew us and sanctify us, and we try to work to be holy before him. And Paul will not countenance any scrap, any sliver, any whiff of that which could lead to legalistic behavior. Not because he doesn't believe in godliness, lives built around God's commands, but precisely because he believes in godliness so, 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 so much. But he knows that there is only one way to godliness. 
There's only one way to a life pleasing of God. And that is to live a life under Jesus' grace and full of the Spirit. Nothing more, nothing less, no other way. So, Paul comes down hard on this Jewish faction, and he calls the Galatians to turn their back on them and this false gospel. Because it does not lead to life. So, this series that we are embarking upon is about how you, little old you, can experience more and more of God's grace and more and more of the life of the Spirit in your life. And it's a series specifically about the freedom that comes down that road. As Paul states in chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But the gospel does not just free us from things. It also frees us for things. The gospel releases us from evil on the one hand, but also releases us for good. And so each week, we're actually going to be looking at one of these movements, one which uh, um, moving away from that which robs us of life, and one which, moving towards it, brings us to life. And so this morning, freedom from gracelessness. This is Galatians 1, chapter 1, obviously. Uh, verse 1. It's right at the beginning. That's the point. Let me read it to you. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, these first four verses follow a customary form of an introduction to any letter at the time. Verse 1, who the letter is from. Paul, an apostle, and all his brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 2, who the letter is to, all the churches in Galatia. Verse 3, 4, and 5, a salutation, customary salutation, grace and peace to all of you. That's all customary. What is striking is what comes next. Uh, now, this letter is probably Paul's first. 
It was written only about 10 or 15 years after Jesus' resurrection, and there is no debate that Paul wrote it. But what is striking is how, having done his customary introductions, Paul does something here he doesn't do in any other of his letters. In every other single one of Paul's letters, he begins the main body of the letter with a positive. For example, to the Romans, he says, chapter 1, verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. To the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of the grace he's given you. To the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. To the Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. To the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 2, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. To the Galatians, right here, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. He is pissed. (laughs) No thanks at all. None. He is thankful for everyone else. But he cannot even bring himself to say, I thank God for you, Galatians. It suggests, does it not, that we should probably take quite seriously what has so upset Paul. Not least, because what has so upset Paul is what has so upset him from whom Paul is sent. Verse 1, Paul says, I'm an apostle. An apostle literally means a sent out one. And the term carries with it the authority of the sending out one. Paul speaks not for himself, but from him who sent him. And verse 1, he is not sent by a man or by men but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Unlike those who have influenced the Galatian church towards an adoption of Jewish law, Paul has not been sent by men. Paul has been sent by Jesus. He carries Jesus' authority with him. He speaks Jesus' words for him. But there's more to it than just that. When Paul uses the term apostle here, he isn't using it just to describe any old person who has been sent by God. People will call themselves apostles these days. They just mean that they've been sent out, commissioned by God. Paul uses it in a much more specific, much more narrow way. To be the sort of apostle that Paul is talking about here, it's not enough just to be sent and commissioned to speak for Jesus, but it is also to have had the authority of seeing the risen Jesus in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, Am I not an apostle, says Paul? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, says Paul? And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he says this, From what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the Twelve. Then he appeared to James. And last of all, he appeared to me. Paul, like the twelve, is marked out because he's seen the risen Jesus. But most importantly, he was the last one to do so. No more seeing of the risen Jesus after Paul. Paul is the final apostle. No more apostles after Paul in this sense. Paul has the final word on what Jesus wants to say. So the point is, What Paul says 
comes with all the weight, all the authority of the true risen Jesus. And so, when Paul cannot even bring himself to find something to be thankful for with the Galatians, so angry is he with them, we might actually do well to think that probably carries quite a lot of what Jesus is feeling too. And so let us, this morning, take very, 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 very seriously what the Galatians have done. What they have done is this. I am astonished, says Paul, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. There are two parts to it. They have deserted the one who has called them, and therefore they have deserted what he has called them to, to live in the grace of Christ. There may be no more important word to a Christian than the word grace. Of every single word in the English language, it may be that the one that you should hold nearest and dearest to your hearts is this little word grace. It's not the word justice, it's not the word mercy, it's not the word peace, it's not even the word love. In fact, all the words, of all of them, the one that you should seek to understand, the one that you should devote your whole life to fully imbibing, understanding, comprehending, having flowing through your whole body, is this one tiny little word called grace. Grace is God's free and unmerited favor towards everyone, however unlovely. Grace is the love of God. Grace is the God reaching down to bless people who reject him, who rebel against him, who want nothing at all to do with him. Grace, as is famously said, means there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. Grace means that there's nothing we need to do to make God love us more. God will not love you more if you fasted and prayed for the next month. God won't love you more if you give everything you own away and give it all to the poor. God won't love you more if you leave your job, go to seminary, become a pastor or a missionary, and give everything up for some righteous, important cause. He will not. And, of course, grace means there is nothing we can do to make him love us less. Just think about this. No amount of gossip, no amount of racism, no amount of porn or murder or greed or adultery can ever, ever get God to love you less. You could spend, you could decide right now to spend the rest of your days, every single moment you have on this dear earth, gossiping, slandering people, taking people down. You could spend the rest of your days posting racial slurs on the internet. You could kill someone in cold blood and then do it again and again and again. You could spend your life robbing from the poor and the destitute to make yourself rich and greedy. You could spend your days 
destroying other people's marriages by sleeping with their partners. You could destroy your own marriage by doing that. And God will still not love you any, 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 any less. When we speak of grace, we are saying that God loves you wholly apart from what you deserve, wholly apart from what you've earned, wholly apart from what you've forfeited. I have been trying to work out how better to show my kids that I love them unconditionally. That nothing they can do could make me love them more or less. I am not God, of course, but I'm trying. We had dinner with some friends uh, of ours and we were talking about our upbringings. And the wife of the couple said um, when she was a teenager, her dad, without fail, would always come and pick her up from parties wherever she was because he cared. And he'd even pick up all her friends and take them home too. And I found this very challenging. And I thought, um, wow. Uh, but I would like to commit to that, because that sounds like something that I could show that it's not just words to my children, that I actually care. Yesterday, I was in the middle of making dinner, right in the middle of it. I hadn't finished it. I had begun it. I was in the middle of it. And as I'm making dinner, I get a call. It's one of my children. Dad, could you come pick me up? I am making dinner. I am in the middle of it. I think I haven't stressed that enough. I haven't finished, and I haven't not started. I am in the middle. And I remembered our conversation with this couple the night before. I said, yes, I'd love to come and pick you up. I didn't quite say that. <laughs> but I want my girls to know, to have concrete evidence that I love them unconditionally, that it doesn't matter. And on the way home, I said, do you know what? Whenever you want to ask, I'll come and get you. I have a pastor friend in the UK, and I actually worked with his dad, who was also a pastor. But this, um, the son was saying, uh, and I've told this story before, but the son was saying that um, before he was a Christian, he uh, partied really hard. He, um, uh, he took a lot of drugs, drink, had a lot of sort of faceless sexual encounters, went to parties that lasted for days. But his dad said to him, I will pick you up uh, wherever you are, whenever you are. And uh, he said, I knew that my dad really disapproved of what I was doing, and I knew I was just self-destructing. I was just trying to um, heal the, the pain in me, and I was just doing it through all of this potting, and I knew he didn't approve. But every single time I called him up, he turned up and picked me up, and every time I got in the car, he said exactly the same thing to me, I'm so proud of you, son. Isn't that amazing? And this pastor friend said, it was because he said that, that it somehow lodged in my brain, that I could accept that possibly God could love me, and I could open myself to his unconditional perfect love. It was the only reason. But I realize if I can show that sort of love to my kids, it will still nevertheless be conditional. Because it's conditional on who, who they are. I would be doing it for them because they're my kids. I'm not doing it for your kids. I'm definitely not doing it for you. You can pick yourself up. But I'm doing it because they are mine. Completely conditional on their status as my children. Jesus' love is not conditional at all. He's doing it to everyone all the time. 
God's love goes out without any single bar to be jumped over in order to receive it. It goes out to those who call him Father, and it goes out to those who despise him. It goes out to those who want nothing whatsoever to do with him, who hate him, who spit in his face. You know, um, Lil Nas X, with his Satan shoes, and his putting himself on a crucifix for his album cover. Jesus loves him more than you could possibly imagine. But that's not all. My love, my friend's dad's love, excuse me. When we are able to it, and we are able to show dear love to people, it is not, though, Jesus' grace. All our love can cover over hurts. All our love can actually forgive people. But Jesus' grace does so much more than just that. Verse 4, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Jesus' love, sorry, Jesus' grace doesn't just love us unconditionally. Jesus' grace doesn't just forgive us unconditionally. Jesus' grace rescues us unconditionally. It blots out every single mark on the copybook. It kills off every stink and stain. Jesus' love rescues us by destroying the power of sin. What sin does is it wraps its tentacles around us and it slowly but surely suffocates the life out of us. What Jesus does on the cross is it pierces its heart and it destroys it and kills it off forever. And it sets us free so that we no longer need to be ensnared by its power. That's the love. That's the grace of God. So much more than just unconditional love. So much more than unconditional forgiveness. Actually rescue. Setting us free. My love can't do that. Your love can, cannot do that. You need his love, every single one of you. And part of the reason I want to go through this book of Galatians together is because we, all of us, particularly you, are incurable legalists. What I mean by that is that all of us are incurably performance-based in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. We continually believe that God will actually love us a bit more if we do good things. And we continually believe that he will actually love us a bit less when we do not so good things. All of us evaluate our standing before God on whether we have prayed or whether we are uh, sinning or whether we have done this or whether we have not done that. And we quickly lose our understanding of God's grace. We invariably get on this sort of performance treadmill with, am I running fast enough? Am I doing enough to be actually acceptable, to be good in God's sight? And all of a sudden, we are trying to save ourselves. We are trying to pay for our own sin. We're trying to rescue ourselves from something we have no ability whatsoever to do. Jesus will not abide any semblance of gracelessness for his people. 
what we do when we indulge gracelessness in our Christianity, whether it's towards ourselves or towards other people, is we say that his death and resurrection actually don't mean enough. What we say is we don't really believe in what he's done. We say he, shouldn't, he didn't really mean it like that. He, he, there was actually a bar, and there is a bar, and I'm going to tell you where it is. Because we don't like grace. We want to be in charge. We don't want to receive something so freely and wonderfully and abundantly given. Ultimately, I think the real problem is we don't actually want Jesus. This is why Paul says it's not just that the Galatians have deserted the grace that Jesus has called them to live into, it's they've deserted him. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one. To reject grace is actually to reject Jesus. I know this is going to get uncomfortable. Don't worry, it's going to get a little bit more uncomfortable. It's quite graphically an act of betrayal. It is to become a traitor. The Galatians aren't just deserting grace, they're deserting God. Do you understand that when you get on a performance treadmill, that when you believe that God loves you a little bit more because you're doing a little bit better, or God loves you a little bit less because you're doing a little bit worse, you are actually becoming a traitor, a deserter to God. That you are a turncoat every time you get caught up in your own good works and acceptance before God. It's not just unwise to become religious to feel good about yourself. It's betrayal of loyalty. It's to forget him. It's to turn your back on Jesus, the big G-O-D. It gets worse. Paul says gracelessness is evil. Jesus Christ, verse 4, gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. What Jesus does is not just rescue us from sin, but rescue us from an evil age. And by age, Paul means a period in history, but he also means much more a state of how we are. A state of how we are before Jesus in the past, and a state of how we can be without him in the present. The present evil age is any age where Jesus' grace is not the present defining reality. Specifically, Paul here describes a life under the law as the evil age. But really, basically, gracelessness is part of an evil age. Living without that defining principle in your life, at any point in your life, is evil. So grace is not just the starting point of the Christian life. It's the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end. There is no part of the Christian life which is not governed entirely, completely, and utterly by grace. Are you a person of grace? Would you like to be a person of grace? There is a great little book by um, Jerry Bridges called Transforming Grace, and in it he puts it like this. We are brought into God's kingdom by grace. 
we are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we are glorified by grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. The whole point is Jesus has rescued you from gracelessness. So don't put yourself back in it. How do we know when we've lost grace? I'll end with this. The best test of whether you have understood, really experienced the grace of Jesus is that the Christian life begins with it and what flows from it is peace. Peace means that you have got off the performance treadmill. You have stepped off trying to do things. If you are all jangled up inside, if you are constantly feeling that you're exhausted, that you're close to burnout, that you need to do more, it's because you are living a Christian life that you cannot. None of us can. And you feel horrible about yourself because you haven't understood grace. Are you judgmental of other people? Often, I've found that when people are their most judgmental towards other people, it's because they're really, really judgmental to themselves. When we know the grace of God, what flows from us is grace for every other person. We'll only get it when we understand that we are in desperate need of it, that we are actually completely bankrupt spiritually without him, without forgiveness, without him running our lives. How else do you know when you've lost grace? Have you added other markers to what you or what you think other people should live by? The Judaizers that Paul is confronting aren't denying Jesus, they're not denying the entry into life of the Spirit, but they are saying that there is adherence on the law on top. And this is so, um, such a different gospel, verse 6, that Paul calls it no gospel at all. And so seriously does Paul take any gospel that is different that he curses anyone, including himself, who would ever preach such a thing. For us, so much, maybe all of the temptation to slide towards gracelessness will not actually come from out there. It will come from in here. Often, churches are accused of following culture, by which people mean we're swapping Jesus for whatever people out there say. But so often, churches run the risk of following culture in here, a culture of gracelessness. It'll be like things like, well, we have to read from this translation of the Bible, and it happens to be the King James Version, and no one else will do. Or it'll be, you really do actually have to speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you haven't quite made it, and we feel slightly sorry for you. It'll be things like that. It'll be, as a Christian, do you really think you should have that second drink? It'll be, as a Christian, should we really be singing a secular song during worship like we did today? I wasn't aware we were going to do that, but we did. It'll be, you must observe the Sabbath in exactly the ways that we prescribe. 
I knew of a pastor, this is completely true, who said that he wouldn't let anyone serve in his church, serve, not lead, serve in his church if they weren't giving more than 10%, and he would check their tax returns. If you'd like to go to that church, I can tell you all about it. (laughs) One pastor I know insisted that the whole of his staff team went to the gym three times a week. And if they weren't, they were sinning. In short, have you ever felt yourself saying this? How could they call themselves a Christian by doing that? They call themselves a Christian and they do that. Yes, they call themselves a Christian because Jesus calls them a Christian. All of those attitudes belong to the present evil age. Flee from them and flee towards the arms of your loving Father who is full of grace for you. So just to end, how do we accept it? First of all, you've got to understand your bankruptcy before him. There are, I have learned, two different types of bankruptcy in this um, country. There is Title VII bankruptcy and Title XI. Title VII says you are bankrupt. However, we're going to give you a chance to get out of it, and then you won't be bankrupt. Title XI says, or maybe chapter, I don't know, whatever. Chapter XI says you are fully bankrupt and you're done. Both obviously come with a bit of shame, a bit of failure. Title VII says you can get yourself out of it. Just do these things and we will no longer declare you bankrupt anymore. That is how so many people live their Christian life. Yeah, I know I need you. I need you, but just help me out and I will, I will sort it out for you. The Christian gospel is chapter 11. Write it on your forehead. I am chapter 11. I am completely bankrupt. And I will always be completely bankrupt, but he raises me up out of the pit all the time, over and over again, because he is with me. And in doing that, we can get off the treadmill of trying to earn his love. Issue all other methods for making yourself perfect. They cannot get to the heart of the problem. Only Jesus on the cross has and does. And thirdly, just open yourselves to him. To his unconditional love for you. Not one of us in this room could do with less love in our lives. Every single one of us could benefit from God's perfect, pure love flowing through us. As Amber was saying, there are caverns in our lives that need to be filled, that need to be filled with his unconditional love, his unconditional forgiveness, his unconditional mercy and grace towards you. Let him fill you with his love and see how you stop becoming tangled up inside, stop becoming embittered, stop becoming so angry and judgmental towards the world and go, yes, thank you more how can I show it to other people that's what the grace of Jesus does what were the words of that um, David Gray song Camden Let, let go of your head let go of your heart for crying out loud for crying out loud the love that he has given you is never in doubt For crying out loud. Just let him love you. 
for crying out loud. It was never, ever in doubt. So just let him love you into the fullness of who you are. Give him the shame. Give him the attempts to earn it. Give it all to him and let him raise you up. He will come to every single party you ever go to and he will pick you up and he'll put you in his car and he will say, I'm so proud of you. That's what he does. Amen, amen. Let us stand. We're slightly over time. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and give you his peace this day and forevermore. Amen. I would like to just invite you, if you are comfortable to do this, just to open yourself. I started um, by saying that uh, some of us find it difficult to receive birthday gifts. Some of us find it difficult to receive gifts from God. But can I encourage you, however difficult you find it, the more you can start, the more you can begin, the easier it will become. We just take baby steps, right? But I just want to acknowledge that some of us find this very vulnerable. Very unnatural. And yet what Jesus is here to do is to welcome you more and more into his presence. You no longer need to be weighed down by things that you've done and things that you haven't done. You no longer need to be weighed down by the guilt and the regret. Instead, let him take all of it, nail it to his cross, and lift you up out of the pit. So let me add my prayers to your prayers. Come, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on your people now. Be people full of God's grace so that you might be people full of God's grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.